Um, believe it or not, Jesus started this trend, only He didn't pick on rednecks. He was picking on self-righteous people. And in the parable we're going to study and dig into this morning, you can almost hear Jesus saying, you might be a self-righteous person if... And if you have your notes, and if you, uh, if you need uh, a bulletin, please raise your hand and we'll get one, get one to you. But uh, if you have your notes, you'll notice this. The first thing I want to point out to you is asking the question, what's the big deal with being self-righteous? What's wrong with being self-righteous? I think that question needs to be asked because the word self-righteous has the term righteous in it. So isn't it better for someone to say, I want to be righteous rather than I want to be evil? Don't you think? I mean, if someone says, I want to be uh, a good person, I want to be the godliest person I can be, that's much better than if someone were to say, I want to be the most evil person I can be. And so we have to ask the question, well, what is the big deal about being self-righteous? Well, in 1735, two missionaries set out from England to the colony of Georgia in the American colonies. One of them had this goal, to be as holy as I can be. When he got here, he, he uh, became uh, the pastor of a local church. He began a ministry to uh, convert the Native Americans, and he worked very hard. One of the things he worked hard at was getting rid of rum. In fact, he would have these public um, I don't know what you call displays where he would pull out a cask of rum and he would hatchet it up, chop it up with a hatchet. Because that was evil and he was pursuing to be holy as he could be. And then there was a girl in town. He kind of caught his eye and he, he liked her. And he wanted to, to begin courting her and marry her one day. And she, he thought, because I'm trying to be the holiest person in the world, certainly... She would want me, but it turns out she got engaged to another man. And so, because it's obvious that him wanting to be a good person and her not wanting him, she must not be a good person. And so, when communion came around the next Sunday, he refused to serve her communion. Like Judy, I love your face. Oh, yeah, exactly. That was bad. Now, it probably wouldn't have been a big deal, except that her daddy was the local sheriff. <laughs> And so this man, who was John Wesley, by the way, had to leave town, get on the next ship back to England, having not converted one Native America, American, having the whole community upset at him and being on the run from the law. And that's where his self-righteousness got him. And if you know his story later on, a few years later, he came to the righteousness of Christ when he says, I felt my heart strangely warm. And I did trust Christ, not myself, trust Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. So when you hear that John Wesley was self-righteous, it makes it a little bit easier that when we read this parable and we, you see the self-righteous Pharisee, that you can say, ha, at one point that was John Wesley. And if we can say that, then it's a little bit easier for us to say, ha, Sometimes I'm a Pharisee, right? If John Wesley could be a Pharisee and self-righteous, then I could be a Pharisee and self-righteous. So let's read now together. If you want to stand with me, it'd be wonderful. Uh, we'll stand and we'll read uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. That's the title in my Bible. Verses 9 through 14 of Luke 18. 
To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Lord Jesus, add your blessing to the reading of your word. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus loved teaching in parables because parables give us the, the best of both worlds. So what we want is we want more knowledge of God. But it's hard to sit through the knowledge of God when it's all given you know, propositionally. Like uh, God is Trinity. God is omnipresent. God is. So Jesus gives us deep knowledge of God. But in, in what, what we need, what we want, but He gives it to us in a form that we like. In story form, right? That makes Jesus the master teacher here. And so as we dig into this parable, I want to point something out to you that this parable contains a trap. That's actually point number two. Those hearing this parable for the first time, they loved Pharisees. When Jesus was telling this parable for the first time, people who he was telling it to, they loved Pharisees. In fact, if you ask the kids, what do you want to be for Halloween? They would say, I want to be a Pharisee. They didn't have Halloween back then, but you get the idea. And so when they heard this story, they would have cheered for the Pharisee and booed. Well, let's try it. They would have booed the tax collector. So here we go. Bring out the, uh, the whiteboard. Maybe we need to have some type of music play when I go over and get the whiteboard. No, I'm kidding. All right. Be careful what you wish for in this church. It comes true. All right, so here we go. I'm going to do this. I'm going to write... Everybody read that? Yay, and we'll do over here. What's that? Okay, and so we'll, we'll practice, see how good we are at this. Oh, by the way, uh, this is a uh, marshmallow stick, so next time we do have the Sunday Night Live students, uh, this is what we're going to, well, we won't use this one, but we're going to have roasted marshmallows. Okay, so let's practice. When I point to A, you say yay. When I point to boo, you say boo. Ready? All right, just messing with you. Some of you knew I was going there. So, so let's, let's do this. Uh, I'm just gonna, if your Bible's open, that would be great. Looking at a few verses here. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. All right. I want you to hear this is what people were actually thinking in their minds when they heard this the first time. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance. Now, that was the first time Jesus told the parable to his audience. The problem is with Jesus' trap is it's not effective anymore. (laughs) Because we read the Gospel of Luke. Actually, if you get to this point in the Gospel of Luke, you already know. If you're in chapter 18 of Luke and you've read chapters 1 through 17, you already know Pharisees are bad people. And if you've grown up in the church and you've heard this parable or other parables and you know the New Testament, the Gospels, you know what? Pharisees are bad people. So when we read this story, we reverse 
the yeas and the boos. We're rooting for the sinners, right? And we're against the Pharisees. So let's try it our way, okay? Because Jesus tried to set a trap for his original audience, but it doesn't work for us. So verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a sinner. The other, sorry, tax collector. Uh, but the tax collector, I'm sorry, let me, go, let me do this right. The Pharisee stood by himself and the tax collector stood at a distance. And so we think, well, Jesus, you're, you're pretty good. You set a great trap for your original audience, but it didn't work for us and we'd be wrong. Because <laughs> the point of the parable is not to get us to figure out who the right person to have contempt on is. The point of the parable is to warn us from having contempt on anyone. So if you yay and boo, let's put it this way, if you boo either the tax collector or the sinner, you've fallen into Jesus' trap. I've fallen into Jesus' trap. You with me here? <laughs> I mean, this is Jesus. He knew... Who was going to fall into the trap the first time he told the story? And he knew who was going to fall into the trap when it was told throughout the ages. In fact, if you look at, uh, at verse 9, it tells us who those we are to boo are. <laughs> to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Anyone who says boo to someone is some who were confident in their own righteousness. You follow me? <laughs> so when we read the story, we boo the Pharisee. That means we're those whom Jesus is condemning, if you will, or warning. Because we found someone to boo to look down on. The point of the parable is for us to realize I am some people. I am a person who shows contempt towards certain other people. I am self-righteous. I am some people. Turn to the person next to you and say, don't say you are some people. Say, I am some people. Go ahead. Say, I am some people. I am some people. You know, the good news about when Jesus says some who were confident, it means that there's some who are not. And the who are not, we'll find out, comes through the power of Christ to transform us. So here's where we're going to go from here. Since we found out that it's not who we yay and boo, it's about if we boo anybody, that we ourselves are self-righteous, then we're going to ask this question. How do I know if I'm self-righteous? And so we're, we're going to... Jeff Foxworthy, since he got it from Jesus, right? <laughs> we're going to ask the question, or make the statement, you might be self-righteous if... You following along? And let's dig into this parable. You might be self-righteous if you distance yourself from certain kinds of people. Uh, look at verse 11. It says, the Pharisee stood by himself. So what that's telling us, both the Pharisee and the tax collector, they go up to the temple to pray. Just so we have the right picture in our mind, they didn't go to a prayer meeting. They went to a temple where everybody was worshiping. Uh, and uh, and, and this still happens in the Middle East, but in that day and age, you say, I'm going up to pray. It meant you were going to a worship service and there would be prayer at that worship service. There would be public prayer and there would be private prayer. And obviously, during this time, we're looking at their, them in a public worship service, but during a time of private prayer. But notice he decides he would not get close to those who 
if you know the New Testament, who he considered unclean. He stood by himself. He avoided contact with certain people because they might spoil his righteousness. If we avoid or keep our distance from other people, certain kinds of people, certain categories of people, then we might be self-righteous. And there's some that are, that are easy to, to point out. We know we avoid certain people who, who we think are weird. And you know there's no consistent definition of weirdness. It depends on the individual what you think is weird. But people who we might think are, are, are weird. And I know you're going, oh, that sounds so junior highish or elementary. But if we had it back then, we still have it now. No matter how old we are. There's, there's certain people we just stand away from. We keep our distance. We avoid contact with because they're weird. We avoid contact with those people who don't agree with us philosophically, spiritually, politically. Got that one? If they're not wearing, if, if they're wearing a logo that shows that they're on the opposite side of you politically, do you move closer or do you move further away from those people? Some people, and I was just doing this in my notes, I thought, this is silly, but no, I, I think it needs to come out in our world. They, they have an, or, an odor about them. And everybody is as hygienic as we want to be, and so we instantly want to move away. Some people are not productive members of society in our minds, so we don't want to be near them. Here, here's a big one. So, what is sacred? To the Pharisee, what was sacred was his own cleanliness, that he didn't defile himself. So, There are many things we could answer with this, but what is something that's very sacred to us today in our society, in our world? That's our time. We don't want anybody wasting our time, right? Why don't you want someone to waste your time? Because it's valuable to you. What's valuable to you is sacred. So we keep our distance from those who would take up our time and it wouldn't be productive for us. People we might have to go visit because they can't get out. They're not well. They're sick. They're in prison in the hospital. Well, that's not productive. We don't go a lot of times. We keep our distance from them. We don't even realize we're being self-righteous, but we are because we're saying, my time is more valuable than than your need. Um, sometimes we avoid conversations. You ever been in a grocery store and you're just in a hurry, you got your task and you see someone you haven't seen in a while and you know if you run into them, oh, there goes five, ten minutes, and our time is valuable, so we keep our distance from there. There are some in our society, by the way, that, that just, just as a further example, it helps. There are certain people whom society says it's okay to keep your distance from, to judge them as self-righteous, and to not be near them. Or, I'm sorry, to be self-righteous from. And that would be those who we consider arrogant. Is this interesting? Those who are arrogant and self-righteous, we don't want to be around, right? (laughs) And if we don't want to be around, we distance distance ourselves from those who are arrogant or really stuck on themselves. They brag all the time. All they talk about is themselves. When we distance ourselves from them, guess what we're being? Self-righteous, yeah. So if you avoid certain types of people, let me just say this. This this doesn't mean put yourself in a dangerous situation. Okay, young ladies? Especially women, when you're out there on your own, I wish we lived in a world where women could be out on their own any time uh, of day or night and not feel uh, and be safe. But that doesn't mean you compromise your safety. Are you hearing me here? 
This has to do with an attitude of, of, of the heart. So if you find yourself avoiding certain types of people, you might be self-righteous. Point B or the next point here. When you talk negatively, negatively about others in their absence. When you talk negatively of others in their absence, you might be self-righteous. When certain other people are not around, you bring up your complaint or negative opinion about them. You have just elevated yourself above them. We do that. I do that. Sometimes we, we couch it in, in false compassion, right? In order to justify it. I feel so sorry for him. He's such a jerk and he just doesn't know it. Right? Doesn't that sound compassionate? I feel so bad. If someone would just go and tell him what a jerk he is, everything would be better. And what have we done? We have just put that person down in their absence and, and at the same time built ourselves up. By, by the way, if you, if you read this parable carefully, you'll see that's exactly what the Pharisee uh, was doing. He was building himself up by putting this other person down. And when we do put someone down, when we talk negatively about another person, just, just understand one thing we're doing is we are saying we're certainly not that. So when you find something to complain about in someone else, when someone has wronged you in some way, and you talk about them negatively in, the, in, in their absence with, with others, what you are saying is, well, at least I'm not that way. Right? You are putting them in another category and putting yourselves in a category, a higher category, saying, at least I am not like that. Um, this is a fascinating thing that comes out of the, uh, the, the Methodist movement. John Wesley used to write instructions for Methodists. Okay, just as a review, John Wesley was a pastor in the late 1700s. He, he and his brother Charles and his mother started the Methodist movement. It later became the Methodist church. And so when he would write to those who were part of the movement at that time, they weren't a church yet, he would call them Methodists. And he wrote some instructions for Methodists. Um, and, and all Methodists, by the way, or most of that time, were, were already churchgoers. That's why the Methodism was a movement. It wasn't a church. They had the Church of England. But they were wanting something more than the Church of England was giving them, so they were going to these Methodist meetings. And so Wesley wrote this one instruction for them. And it's, it comes out of his list of instructions for being Methodist. And he says this, and I'll say, what Methodists, and we'll put it this way, Wesleyans, because we're Wesleyan, right? He had this rule. You are not to mention the fault of an absent person, in particular of ministers or of those in authority. So here was his rule. You are not to mention the fault of an absent person. Let's leave it at that. In the midst of others. Alright? Okay, that sounds like a good rule. But I want you to hear what he said in preface to this. In other words, when he was introducing this rule, you shall not mention the fault of an absent person. He's speaking to Christians who were going to church all their lives. But here's what he said right before he gave them this rule. He said this, this rule will be new to you. Are you catching my drift? <laughs> you should not mention the fault of a person in their absence. This is a new rule, I know. Wait a minute. He's talking to Christians who, who had been going uh, to church, many of them every Sunday, most of their lives. Why would this be a new rule? How had the church forgotten it? I guess we'd have to dig into history to find that out. But I think it's something we still forget today. Maybe it's just human nature. Because how many times if we were to count yesterday or the day before, did we mention the fault of someone else in their absence? Right? 
Right now is a great time to have one of those commercials come on and say, you want to get away? <laughs> I want to get away right now. And that's exactly what this Pharisee does. Uh, he's mentioning the fault. Remember, uh, there's a sense where he's in the presence, the Pharisee's in the presence of this tax collector. Only tax collector's far away. He can't hear the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood by himself, so he's mentioning that Pharisee's, uh, I'm sorry, the tax collector's fault within visual range, but not audible range. But the Pharisee standing nearby, if he's praying out loud, those who were standing next to him could hear him finding fault with this tax collector. Sometimes, right, we come home either after work or being away somewhere and someone says, hey, tell us about your day. Well, let me tell you about this awful person. Let me tell you about this awful guy. Let me tell you about this, this rude kid. Let me tell you about this mean lady. Right? We fall right into the tree. It could be people we know. It could be people we don't know. But if you talk negatively of others in their absence, you might be self-righteous. And the, and the third thing is we dig into what the Pharisee did here. As we notice this. This is letter C. You think religious activity makes you a good person. You might be self-righteous if you think religious activity makes you a good person. All the things Jesus mentions here, that this man went up to pray, that, that he tithed, that he, that he fasted, those are all good things. And some places in the Gospel, uh, you'll find Jesus saying, yes, we should do all those things. But just because you do those things, never does that make you righteous. Jesus never says, by doing these things, you become righteous. I go to church. I attend regular Bible study. I, I read the Bible daily. I, I give. I tithe, etc., those are good practices of good people often. doesn't guarantee they're done by good people. But those are not the things that make us good. Rather, these practices are conduits. They're the pipes through which the grace of God's goodness and righteousness flows into our lives. There are two kinds of Christians, somebody once said. Those who have gone to church in a small group Bible study for 10 years, and they are 10 years more mature in Christ. And there are those Christians who have gone to church and small group Bible study and read their Bibles for 10 years, but they had just repeated the first year of their Christianity over and over again. They were not changed in themselves through the Word of God. They thought just by going to church or just by, by tithing or just by studying God's Word or reading it that that's what, what changed them. But no, it was the grace of God that came through those things. You may know God's Word. So what? How has it changed your life? How has it shaped you? If you think religious activity makes you a good person, you might be self-righteous. Now, I hope you all are following along with me here this morning and realize we come here, all of us, in need of God's righteousness. So when I say you might be or I might be, there's no might about it. We can fall back into the habits of self-righteousness. But we have a Jesus, a God who has sent His Son, died so that we can be forgiven and cleansed so that we can escape self-righteousness self and live humbly. If you look at point four, it's simply this. We get caught up in self-righteousness. When we forget our nature and our need. We get caught up in self-righteousness. You see how easy it was there? 
We get caught up in self-righteousness. We forget our nature and our need. Uh, the, the Pharisee in this parable forgot the problem of our human nature. Our human nature is bent inward. It always seeks to promote ourself. It always seeks to do what's best for me. It always seeks to bring and, and make me get ahead of others, either spiritually or physically or socially or financially, whatever. But the tax collector was different. He knew his nature. He knew he had nothing. Now let's just pause there for a moment. When, when Jesus, later on here, when he says in the end, those who humble themselves, Jesus doesn't mean that we are to humble ourselves before each other. That's a good thing to do, but that's not what he's talking about in this parable. He's not saying be a humble person, be a nice person, let people go before you. He's saying to humble yourselves before God. So if you need to write that down somewhere, remember whenever you read or hear Jesus' statement, humble yourself, it's not about being humble in the person in this world. It's about humbling yourself before God, saying everything I need, God, even my righteousness comes from you and I bring nothing with me. I still fight this, this thought. But if I want God to like me, love me, and help me, and bless me, I need to do something good, right? <laughs> and I know, and, you know, the Bible says no, but it's just a, it still comes into your mind sometimes. This, Pharisee, sorry, this tax collector becomes a great example. He comes to God with nothing, and he realizes his nothingness. He's beating his chest. It's a sign of mourning. He mourns the fact that he has nothing to present to God. He has no righteousness in and of himself. That's why it is such an amazing thing to hear Jesus say, he went home justified. He went home having been made righteous. God's purpose for us, listen church, God's purpose for us is not to make us successful in this world. It's not to bring us up out of poverty. It's not to, to um, make us more rich than we are. It's not to give us success in, in education or career or any of those things. God's purpose for us, the reason for which He sent His Son, is to make us holy. To make us like Christ. You say, well, how come some Christians um, stay poor? Some rise up to middle class. Some get rich. I, I don't know. I know that when God looks at them, He doesn't see those social distinctions. He doesn't, doesn't see uh, the differences of, of finances. He doesn't look at the cars they drive. He doesn't see that. We think He does, right? There, there is some in, in Christianity, unfortunately, that preach that God wants to make you rich, which means if you're not rich, God doesn't like you very much. That's not true. What God sent His Son to do was to make us holy, to give us Righteousness to make us like Jesus Christ. To change, listen, the very attitudes and desires of the human heart. That's why we go to church. That's why we, we get in Bible studies with others. That's why we read the Word of God. Not just to acquire knowledge. Knowledge is good, but so that through the reading of the Word, the Holy Spirit whom God has given to us might change our attitudes, might change our hearts might reshape us. And you go, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say that those who become Christians 
are made new, right? Second Corinthians 5.17 The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Don't we have new hearts? And the answer, of course, is yes. But we don't have finished hearts. See, we read 2 Corinthians 5.17 that we've been made new. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been made holy. And by the way, John Wesley helped us understand it. He said that's initial holiness. <laughs> because there's a lot more holiness to be worked at in our lives. Think of it this way. When we receive Christ, when, when God forgives us our sin and He cleanses us and He makes us holy, He gives us new hearts, it's like when you opened a brand new thing of Play-Doh when you were a kid. Now, now, who can remember that? I'm hoping I'm using a good example here. Who knows the difference between fresh Play-Doh and old, worn-out, discolored, dirty, stiff, stale Play-Doh? Are you, are you with me on that? Okay. And if you can't do Play-Doh, then just think of a piece of bread. <laughs> we'll use that too. I just want to include everybody in this imagery. But you loved when mom uh, went to the store and got you a new thing of Play-Doh. Because the old Play-Doh, after a while, it would just get dirty from your hands. And it would get stiff and you couldn't mold it or form it anymore. That's the old life. That's the old heart. That's our heart before Christ. It's stubborn. It cannot be shaped. So what Christ does is He remakes our heart into something formable, something shapeable. Go back to Genesis. It says that God, uh, um, or the Spirit of God, or the waters, excuse me, hovered over the earth. It was formless and void. But there was an earth. <laughs> there was something there that God was hovering over. What did it need? It needed God to speak so that it could become something new. And so we need God's Word to speak to our brand new made hearts. When God makes us new, He doesn't make us done. He makes our hearts able to be shaped so that when we go out to lunch or hang out with some other people later today, and out of our mouth comes, you know, this person, this guy's really a jerk. If you want to stop saying negative things about others in their absence, that's a sign that your heart has been made new. Because the old heart doesn't want to stop. Are you with me? And the new heart doesn't just stop there. The new heart, because the Holy Spirit lives in us, we've been cleansed, says, Lord, I just believe. You may not say it out loud. You might. I don't know. <laughs> Help me to stop talking about the person that way. One of the wonderful things that happens in our, in our men's uh, Bible study is uh, we get honest. Sometimes we talk about that neighbor, that friend, that coworker who's really annoying to us. <laughs> but we don't do it in the sense of complaint. We do it in the sense of, I need help. I need to learn how to get along with this person. I need to learn how to maybe stop disliking this person. I'm glad that God can work with us incrementally. <laughs> And that's what it means to humble ourselves before God and allow Him to reform the brand new heart He's given to us into, the, into a heart that's like Jesus Christ. So here's what I, were, I want to end this morning. I, I gave you the... We go through all the points. Did you get them all? So I just have a question for us as we close this morning at the end. And it's simply, simply this. Our nature is 
for ourselves. But God has given us a new nature, a new heart. Now, the old nature, it, it still kind of calls from a distance and we can go back there. Unless we are digging into God's Word, letting His Holy Spirit convict us, and letting Him reshape our hearts, our attitudes, uh, and the desires of our hearts into something new. Are you willing? Will you recognize your nature and your need and seek God's righteousness? Through hearing His Word, through being in a small group with others, studying His Word and helping hold each other accountable, through reading His Word, will you seek His righteousness to be made holy like Christ? That's where we end up this morning. The self-righteous person doesn't seek it. But the person who doesn't want to be self-righteous recognizes he has to beat his chest or her chest and allow God to fill him with divine righteousness. Amen? Would you stand with me as we, as we, uh, as we pray? And the worship team is going to come forward. And we are only going to say yay for our worship team. Okay, there we go. I do it that way. All right. Gracious Almighty God in heaven, we can come before You right now because in Your presence, Lord, it is safe to acknowledge our sin and our failure. Forgive us, Lord. O God of mercy, we take our lesson this morning from the tax collector who, who didn't even feel he could lift up his head like most people prayed. Who didn't even feel that he could sit near, be near other people in, in the temple courts. But who humbled himself before you, who said, Lord, there is nothing good in me that comes from me. If there's going to be anything good, if there's going to be anything right, if there's going to be any righteousness in me, it has to come from you. And it's going to require your cleansing me, your convicting me, your teaching me, your renewing me. Lord Jesus, forgive us for our self-righteousness. And we pray, Lord, help us to recognize when self-righteousness begins to, to sneak into our lives. When we find ourselves distancing ourselves from certain categories of, of people or kinds of people. When we find that we are um, talking about people negatively in their, their absence. When we begin to think, well, at least I'm a good person because I'm doing these religious practices rather than recognizing these are simply means to receive Your grace, Your help, Your Word. May every time we hear Your Word, we, we say, Lord, make that true in my life. Convict us. Teach us. Even if, if the conviction is, is so painful, we end up beating our chests and mourning. At least we know that the words of Jesus are true. We will go home justified, made righteous. Have Your way with us. Make us righteous, Lord, as we seek Your righteousness. In Your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Who, O Lord, could save themselves, their own soul could hear. Our shame was deeper than the sea. Save themselves, their own 
continue to, to bless us uh, through this, this series. I hope you were blessed today. We'll continue next week as we will meet uh, the most helped person in the New Testament. And you won't believe who that is, the one God helped the most. But today we don't have a benediction because today we have treats. And so our challenge is this, to, to greet some people around you, someone you haven't seen in a while or have never seen before, and go out and enjoy some treats with them. Amen. God bless you and start greeting. <laughs>